Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Dr. Bobby McDonald. She serves as the Senior Partner for Ecosystem Growth and Advancement for Education Reimagined, a nonprofit organization dedicated to a transformational vision for education. Her previous work as Executive Director of City Neighbors in Baltimore sought to provide an answer to the question, what would it take for every student to be known, loved, and inspired? That question remains at the heart of her work today. Bobby most recently completed her doctorate in education leadership from Harvard University. Welcome, Bobby. I'm excited to chat. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So I'd love to start with that super big, deep question that fuels your work. What would it take for every student to be known, loved, and inspired? Mm, Such a good question. It's a question that we really do want to be answering together. And, um, you know, that was the question we used when we helped create City Neighbors Schools in Baltimore. We really asked that question. We put it on the table. And then the things that came to us, like, well, wouldn't you really need a time and place in the day of a child where that is the intention to make sure they're known, to make sure they're loved, to give them opportunity to be inspired? And then we thought, well, Maybe if we create advisories and maybe if we create them like in living rooms in the school and maybe if the kids also have a little kitchen area and their lockers are in there and they all have their own workspace and there's this home base in the school. You know, we started to dream. You know, I'm an early childhood educator. And so the idea of having to meet children where they are and who they are comes really naturally to early childhood educators because you really can't teach any other way except to meet them where they are. And that's, you know, an amazing perspective. But I was teaching kindergarten at the Center for Young Children, the lab school at the University of Maryland. And a little boy came from California with his mom and dad who had just got divorced and the mom was coming to be a graduate student. And in protest, he decided he wasn't going to talk in school even though he could. And at that time in that class, I was teaching kindergarten, we did really cool thing called story dictation. It's inspired by Vivian Paley of the University of Chicago. And it's when you write down kids' stories and they dictate it to you. And then we would, you know, they put it in the little spot on the thing. And then before we would get ready for lunch or something, it'd be story time. And we'd all gather on the rug, the whole community. And we'd say, um, you know, whose turn is it? Whose story is it? And um, one of the Kids would come up and either they would read it or I would read it, depending on, you know, what level they were at. And then they would say, pick the people to be in their story. You know, who's going to be in your story? Who's going to help tell your story? And then they would, you know, I'll be the sun. I'll be the tree. I need two princes and I need a princess. I need someone to be a castle. I need a problem. You know, like then they would pick each other. The person would come up and then we would read the story and enact it in front of the rest of the class. You know, we'd say the lights are going down, the curtain's going up. So we did this every day and it became a big part of our community and the way we created community and the way the kids knew each other and related to each other. 
as storytellers, as people who are exploring things. And this little boy who wouldn't talk decided he would act like a lion for certain parts of the day when he was uncomfortable. And he would literally kind of growl and crawl around. And the character of a lion started to appear in different people's stories. And then they would say, who wants to be the lion? (laughs) You know, and then the little boy would kind of timidly raise his hand and he got to be in other people's stories. He showed them what he was first. They wrote him in. It's like a beautiful example of inclusion, you know? Mm -hmm. And so eventually, finally, one time he came to me and said, and these were the first words he ever said to me, you know, I want to write a story. And I was like, great, grab his paper. And he told his story. And so then I put his to the top, I admit. And that day I was like, okay, everyone, great news. Dana has written a story. And everyone was completely shocked. And he came up and we read the story about, you know, a prince and a castle. There was a lot of that kind of mythology happening right then in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And there was a lion in it and other things. And then I said, okay, you know, who wants to be the this or who wants to be the that? I assumed Dane was going to be the lion. And so I said, who wants to be the prince? And he turned and looked at me in surprise and he said, oh, no, I'm the prince. And then he looked at my class and said, who wants to be the lion? And every hand went up. You know, what I, mean? <laughs> I think the community found a way to know Dane, to show him love and to inspire his participation. And I think that's what we really want out of a system of education that we would publicly say in our shared imagining of what we really want for our kids and the kind of society we want to create. What we want is for every child to be known, loved, and inspired. Now, how would we go about that in a way that is equitable, community-based, learner-centered, and really responsive to the people in the system? I feel like I had a chance to explore that at a school level and a network of schools. And now in my role with the Education Reimagined, I begin to think with a lot of amazing people who are actually thinking about what that could mean about a system that would be driven by those values and those principles. I mean, these five-year-olds did it authentically and intrinsically. Like They're not thinking about, oh, here's someone who's not feeling like he's part of the community. How can we make him fit in? Let's make sure that we write in parts of for a lion into our story so that he can participate. Like, this isn't going through their minds. This is just something we naturally do as humans. So I think part of the question then is, how do we continue to foster that? Or how do we make sure that we don't stop doing that? Right. As an early childhood educator, we're always talking about how the curriculum, that feeling of curriculum gets pushed down, pushed down, you know, They're teaching first grade and kindergarten, and they want preschool to look like kindergarten, and they keep pushing it down. And we really did try at City Neighbors to take the best early childhood concepts and push it up all the way. And we tested all the way up through 12th grade. We asked ourselves, what does play look like for fifth graders, really? And what would it look like if our high school kids, you know, could really feel free to be who they they are and, and have time to explore and, you know, the messiness of it? But we were in a system that wasn't designed to support schools like ours. When I was there for 20 years, I raised my children with the community. It was a shared 
cooperative. And we actually did create it as a cooperative, a family teacher cooperative. But it was like, how does a community imagine that over time they want to raise their children together? And you could say we're not. We're all autonomous and making different choices. And, and that is important. I think that should be available. But in the end, we are all raising our children together. It really makes me think because we're we're in the process of launching a middle school. We've been a K to five school. We're launching a middle school in 2023. And so we're going through these planning meetings with with our families and with our students and with a team of educators and middle school leaders and consultants and kind of asking all three groups the same questions. But as you're talking about this morning meeting and how they're all storytellers and they're having kids come up and participate, my brain is going to, okay. So what does play look like in middle school, right? How do we give kids the opportunity to try on all of these different personalities in a safe space? And how do we get them to continue to share their voice? And like, what would an activity like that that you did with early childhood look like in sixth, seventh, eighth grade? I think, Tanya, the part that you're bringing up for me right now is that when we pose the question, in terms of how do we provide this or allow for this, we're standing on a paradigm of there's some kind of inherent authority in that, that partly, of course, is true. We are adults and we are going to take care of the children. But the authority over the learning and the teaching is keeping us from doing the very thing that we want. When we really talk about their agency, at Education Reimagine, we mean agency. We mean learning is the work of learners and learning is purposeful. It cannot be done to people or for them. They develop confidence in who they are and take more and more responsibility to determine their own unique learning pathways. Like if you really have that, if you're really holding that, then School does not look like it did. And I think that that's why um, asking the right question is so good. But you have to look and say, where is this question coming from? So I think that's why we really hold learner agency at the heart of the vision that we have been studying with practitioners and schools and districts. Education Reimagined is a catalyst organization. And it got started when a group of people were brought together, convened, who had opposing views and just different perspectives of education, you know, a group of stakeholders. And they took us through this amazing process. I was part of that group, too, and said, can you put down right in front of you, just as clear as you want, the things you're holding on to that are true about education? And then they said, what do we really believe about children? Like, let's get clear. Like, do we see children as capable? as powerful, as loving, as the drivers of their own life, even like, what do we really believe? And then if we have that learner agency, that learner-centered stand, and we actually came up with five points. Learner agency is one of them. Ensuring that learning is socially embedded, that relationships are the foundation and learning is relational. That's another one. And then (laughs) this one, we like put three in, we're calling it one personalized, relevant, contextualized, and that each learner's unique interests, backgrounds, lived experience, their needs. You know, Dane came to us with a need. 
You know, like all of that really matters. The stories that kids have, they're part of the learning. They're not something like, oh, isn't it nice that we know a little bit of the kid's background? That is part of the quilt of that person. It's in there, who they are. And then open walled that we actually are learning everywhere. And that's interesting. What if we really think about that, that the community in the world are the playground for learning? Couldn't we do a lot more with our kids and offer them more support if we really see that they have the whole world to learn from? You know, that's such a different perspective. And then finally, last one is making the learning competency-based, like just as opposed to grades, memorization-based learning, just it's a really different thing to think of assessment of learning as learning, for learning. Like that's a really different stand. And so those are the five elements that are all connected. We pull them apart to take a look at them. And that when those are the North Star, schools and communities and people, and it all is suddenly operating really more like an ecosystem. Yeah. So I'm really curious with the schools that you work with and if they're moving from a more traditional model and traditional ideas, what does that look like for them? That that system of change, that opening of walls, that really building student agency and moving it from, you know, the teacher as the giver of knowledge to the student as the driver of learning. You know, how does that happen in a school? There's two things I want to say about that. One is, besides the how, the what does that look like? The best way to get that answered is to listen to some learners who have spent time in a a school that has like that kind of focus. Listen to them talk about their own learning. It just blows your mind because you're like, wow, I thought I was a pretty good learner. But this person is holding it at such a higher level. You know, at first I thought this, but then I I asked some questions and that led me to this relationship with this person on the outside who was working on this. And then I asked him and he said, maybe we should investigate that. It's like this way of talking about their learning that is so powerful. But the how is really interesting because one of our purposes is to build the learner-centered field, like as a field that's recognizable. And there's so many people already working in this that we're connecting to. So it's partly just being willing to connect folks and to recognize the field. But we've also done a lot of work with people who are holding these different ways of thinking in terms of what's our shared language? What do we really mean when we say learner-centered? And so we're real, always really careful with that, to have that shared meaning. Because someone else might think, oh, it's personalized learning The kid's going to take a class online. And that's not what we're talking about. So we try to do that. So building shared language, building a recognizable field. And within that field, we've worked with a lot of, and we still do have a community of schools and practitioners who want to think about this further. And so sometimes we've had, there's so many people in our community, but it goes from state boards of ed or districts or just schools or just even a teacher in a classroom is part of our community, you know. People in the field of education, like out-of-school time providers or people who are holding different pieces of this puzzle, and they know that if we could get connected in a better kind of infrastructure that was actually designed with this holistic way of approaching it, that they could do even more of what they love to really serve kids. So 
Sometimes I think it is first that mindset, that paradigm shift. That has to happen. And when people, once they have that, they kind of can't go back. And sometimes that starts with one teacher in a school and then it spreads. Sometimes it starts with a teacher in a school and it's not going to spread because the system's not designed necessarily to allow that kind of shared thinking. Because the system we have is one that was built, you know, during the industrial age with a colonial, you know, bent. And it's for standardization. It's based on the idea that there's an average student. I love Todd Rose and his work, Beyond Average. And he just also did a book called Collective Illusions. Have you heard of that one? I heard him speak not too long ago, right before the book came out. and He was talking about it. Yeah, so that one's great too. And that one addresses people's perception about what constitutes success. And they conducted a study and they found that 97% of people personally considered success to be a matter of having meaning and purpose in their lives. And at the same time, 92% of survey respondents thought that most other people define success in terms of career, money, and fame. So it was like one massive illusion. And I think we're holding a massive illusion that we can't change the system or that it's so hard to change the system. I mean, I know it's hard to change a system. I tried, you know, doing it in many different ways when I was a school designer and, and, you know, working with people. We wanted the system to want us and it didn't. And that's because to go from that place of reform where you're making things a little bit better, a little bit better, to actually transformational stand, you have to allow for that paradigm shift. You have to see the world differently. And when you do, the problems you think you have aren't there anymore. It's different problems, but it's not those. So the community is going to actually have a lot of wisdom and knowledge that we're going to need. In, in schools that have really connected with the community, like big picture learning, they're really the best example of an organization that gets the power of kids to connect with learning outside of its walls and then really create systems and ideas and platforms, one's called Be Unbound, to support that. And it connects kids based on their interests and passions and need to people out in the community or the world. And it's the idea is like, if this kid over here really wants to meet an astronaut, someone in this network knows how to get to an astronaut. Let's make that happen for that kid. I mean, that's a different conversation. Like, oh, no, how are we going to handle transportation? Like, we'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, we're going to figure that out. So how did this happen for you? You know, how did you walk through that door from traditional education? And I'm guessing like going into early childhood education, you had a degree and you went through the training for how you teach in school and what that looks like and possibly shadowing some teachers. Like at what point or how did that door open to where you saw the paradigm shift and your problems change from old problems to new problems and you could see a different way of doing things? I'm not sure I ever, ever did live in the conventional one. I think that's why I was drawn to early childhood, because I didn't have to. And the literacy and numeracy and, you know, character building was so a part of our everyday lives together. So a part of the play we were doing. That's why the block corner was so successful, you know, because... They were learning math, literacy. They were building new worlds. They wanted to put signs up. They wanted to describe them. They wanted to have long-term projects, short-term projects. 
But I think for people, you know, we run a learning lab orientation and we take folks through like a seven week course to help think together about these distinctions. And a lot of people come in knowing already so much from their own experiences. It's just helps us to communicate with each other to have these distinctions. And it does help clarify. But when you're off, and this still happens to me sometimes, I'll be saying something and I'll realize, oh, this is in the old paradigm. This doesn't actually make sense. The term out of school time won't make sense in the new paradigm. You're talking about how you've kind of always thought this way. When you're working with schools or with teachers who that may not be the case, what is the biggest challenge that you see to making those changes or taking the first steps on that transformation? I think one of the things that we have found in our study and practice in these past eight years we're working with and convening conversations in communities is that when we connect with each other as human beings and then create a space to acknowledge what's so for people and then give people, you know, some spark and space to imagine. The first school we opened in Baltimore, our question was, if you could have the best school you could imagine, what would it be? And it's so great because it's open-ended and teachers want a chance to imagine Parents want a chance. Kids want a chance. What would be really amazing that we could really set up here together? When you create that space, people come up with wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. And then to ask the questions of like, how would we get there together? That's all it takes. And each community would, of course, come up with something unique to them. And that would make sense. I love technology and the advances and how it's impacting education because we can do so much now that was hard to do or hard to imagine doing before. Yes, every child could have an individualized learning plan, of course. And yes, every child can have a portfolio that stays with them. And yes, we can involve many more people in real assessment of their work, including the kids helping facilitate that. Like Things get a little easier when you can coordinate and use technology. Well, I love how your answer came back when I asked about the challenge you came back to making the space for them to be heard, to be listened to, to be known, and then giving them the space to be inspired and to dream. And it's back to the original question that we started the whole conversation with, right? (laughs) What would it take to be known, loved, and inspired? Um, And that's really the core of, of all of your work and of making things happen and of creating change. Yeah, that's what we're working on. And it's really amazing work. And there's so many good people working on it. We have like three ways we're approaching it. Building the learner-centered field, catalyzing joyful invention, and then spreading the vision, sharing people's stories. You know, we're always highlighting stories and places and and kids and, and folks who are doing this thinking because kind of back to the Todd Rose idea of collective illusions, The more we tell those stories or the more people actually listen to kids talk about this kind of learning, you know, and the more we do that, we're changing what our collective illusion is to one that we intend, that we love to imagine together, where we've created a system that by design is equitable, not like, oh, it's equitable and we're done, but it's designed to always be questioning its own equity. Are we being equitable? We would only know that if we were really connecting, talking, looking, self-assessing, community-based, and then learner-centered, 
Like, let's make sure we're on the right path with that. And then as an ecosystem, a system that's dynamic, you know, that's fluid, that has a holistic cohesiveness to it, and then really connected, you know, instead of disconnected. And that's really the vision for the the transformational vision for a public education system that we can have if we would just agree to imagine it together. And it's wonderful. I'm really appreciative to be in this work with so many people all across the country that are thinking about that in different ways, but really all kind of in the same river. I'm excited about what it can mean for children and families and communities if we really had that deep level of respect for kids as they were growing up developmentally of like the ways they could participate and be members in community. Like throughout the day, you'd see kids everywhere. I have a feeling there would be no more like empty, crappy lots anywhere. Things that they cared about and mattered would become like community projects. They'd be working with different civic groups and businesses and partners. You see little sparks of that. And there are schools that are, you know, taking a stand for that kind of work. But to actually have a system designed to support that thriving, that's something that we all would need to imagine together. I think we can. We can envision a system and a community of thriving. I think we can. (laughs) Yes, that's great. I love to ask everyone that's on the show to share with us a memory of elementary school. So I'd love to hear one thing you remember from that time in your life. Okay, that's nice. Well, I remember the first day that I went to my new elementary school. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. And we moved when I was in the middle of first grade. And the school I had been in for kindergarten and half of first grade was a very strict conservative school. And you weren't allowed to talk until it was your turn. And everyone walked in lines, of course. And you sat in your chair and the teacher taught you. And that was just the way it was, you know. Then we moved out to the suburbs. And the first day I was walking and I remember holding my mom's hand. And I saw a kid out in the hallway laying on their stomach, like kicking their feet up against the wall. And they had their math book open. And I was so shocked. Like nowhere in my world. Would a kid be so comfortably laying out in the hallway with the book, reading, with kicking their feet against it? And I like grabbed my mom's hand and said, Mom, that kid is going to get in so much trouble. (laughs) And she said, oh, no, Bobby, it's a little bit different here. You'll start to notice it's really different. And it was like walking into a different world, except I recognized the contrast between my old school and the new school. And I also saw that there were no children of color in my new school, whereas my old school was fully integrated because it was in the early 70s and there was a crossover. It was during the white flight and my parents were part of that. But in my lifetime, my neighborhood was always integrated. And that's what I thought was normal. Mm -hmm. And in my new school, it looked wrong. And it always has. Like, where is everybody? (laughs) So I think... That was a, you know, a moment I'll never forget. And I, I've understood it in different ways throughout my life, you know. And the way I think of it now is the opportunity we have to, in a way, it's hyper-local, create strong communities. Every community can be a strong community. It's not utopian. I'm not talking about creating utopia. 
I'm talking about creating a system that whose resilience comes from diversity and allowing for uniqueness and creativity. And so that's the moment. <laughs> it's nice to remember holding my mom's hand. I love my mom. She uh, is 88. She teaches early childhood like five mornings a week. Oh, wow. She loves, she's like, why would I stop doing what I love? So anyway, that's my mom. Thank you for asking about my elementary school experience. Yeah, thank you for sharing. It sounds like in some ways that might have been the moment that that paradigm shift happened for you. Oh, you're right. It's no great. With many other layers involved there, but that moment of strict traditional school, like there's something different. There's another way. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Thanks, Tanya. <laughs> yeah, I guess I saw the contrast. Like, oh, it can be like this. I just, as I grew up, my response became, oh, it can be like this. And wait, why isn't it like that for everyone who wants it? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Bobby. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to reach out or learn more? Sure. Educationreimagined.org. And we also have a great website called thebigidea.educationreimagined.org. And the big idea has these quick little videos that kind of give you a quick visual image of what the ecosystem could look like and how it could operate. So check out the big idea. And if you just go to educationreimagined.org, you'll see a link for it. On Twitter, it's educationreimagined. Or if you want to connect with me, it's bobbymac18. Anyone's welcome to email me, bobby at educationreimagine.org. If you'd like to learn more about ecosystems or if you want to share the work that you're doing, we're always looking to build our community. And thank you, Tanya, for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.